I'd like to uh, welcome you all to this fantastic evening here at Kehillat Israel Reconstructionist Congregation of Pacific Palisades. Uh, some of you come very far, really far. Some of you come from across the world to be here. We're pleased for that. Some of you have come from Bend, Oregon to be here. We have people here from on the other side of Los Angeles who are complaining because it's so hard to get here and it's a schlep and, you know, um, and we understand. And so we're, we're privileged that you took the time and effort and, and showed up tonight. It's uh, looking forward to this very special, very special evening. Um, an evening on anti-Semitism doesn't always sound like having a good time exactly, I must say, but... Um, here, as we are, the Jewish world, commemorating the, the 75th anniversary of Kristallnacht, and, um, and also in the last... Russia, Ukraine, I guess, really, technically. Um, some of you may remember, I was just thinking about different outstanding anti-Semitic experiences like the Dreyfus trial and, and things. And uh, the Bayless trial 100 years ago was uh, very dramatic. It was um, a blood libel trial, in case you hadn't heard of it. Menachem Mendel Bayless, who uh, was accused of uh, murdering a, a Christian child and using his blood for... Passover matzah, which is usually what um, blood libels are about. And, um, of course, it wasn't true. And not only wasn't it true, but after two years of being in prison and eventually having a trial, he was actually uh, found not guilty uh, because it was, even at the time, the, the alleged experts and witnesses against him were so ridiculous that even the anti-Semitic, um, although they wouldn't have called it then, anti-Jewish uh, members of the jury couldn't bring themselves to, to convict him. But this is an issue that uh, for the Jewish community, of course, is long-standing, the whole area of anti-Semitism, um, which, of course, itself, I guess, is a misnomer. Um, anti-Semitism, it's really anti-Jewishism would be better, as far as I'm concerned. But, um, but we're privileged to, to have an expert this evening, a, a very special guest. I'm not going to introduce. I'm going to allow Robert Resnick to introduce. Um, but we, we appreciate you being here. We thank you for the guests of yours that you have brought with you. Uh, we encourage you to come anytime. We want you to know that every one of our services, and including this, all of our experiences here are streamed live on our website. So those of you who are in Sweden or anywhere else in the world, you can always feel a part of KI by simply logging onto our website when we're having anything, and you can participate and uh, bring us into your, your home. Um, this evening came about because of Robert Resnick, um, not only a longtime member of KI, but more importantly, a longtime leader of, of KI, a member of the board for more years almost than I'm alive. And... Um, um, and um, chair of our, of our real estate committee and the man who was responsible for redoing our bylaws. So if things aren't working at KI, we can always blame Robert because he rewrote the bylaws. Um, and um, 
is just one of the one of the great outstanding leaders of of this synagogue and this community. So I'm going to give Robert Resnick the great privilege of introducing our guest speaker. Hello, everybody. It, uh, yeah, uh, this one. Okay. There's a choice. It's like the old story about uh, two Jews in the room. There's always three opinions. Well, there's now there's very very tough very tough to choose. Okay. Uh, very warm welcome to everybody here, oh, and to the Swedes. Very yachtlig velkommen. Uh, this is a very special night for me in, in many ways to be able to bring my Swedish friends and those that I have enjoyed and shared so many life experiences with into our home uh, for uh, many reasons. Sweden has enjoyed a, a, a wonderful, close, and very important relationship with the Jewish community for centuries and centuries, and Lund University, as much as any other place in Sweden, uh, characterizes that relationship in many ways. Uh, beginning uh, uh, way back when Lund was formed in 1666, it's beginning preparations to celebrate its 350th year jubileum anniversary. Um, it's a school of 47,000 students. It ranks, I think, 66 in the top-ranked 1,000 universities in the world. And the story of the relationship between Lund University and the Jewish people is a story that is really untold and I think really needs to be told. Um, uh, southern Sweden, where Lund is located, was the place that many of the Jews who were escaping uh, central uh, continental Europe and, uh, and exiting Denmark after the Nazi occupation uh, were accepted with open arms and allowed to come and live freely and become a part of Swedish society. And Loon today operates the Raul Wallenberg Institute, uh, uh, which teaches and exports human rights, international law. It's headed by Marie Tuma, who is a former judge in the criminal courts of The Hague, who herself has tried many uh, Holocaust uh, war crimes uh, and is very passionate about about human rights and, and the rights of Jews. Uh, Lund also houses the Ravenbrook archives, which was sort of a, its own local form of the Shoah project that's been sponsored and put together by Steven Spielberg. In 1946, one of the professors at Lund began translating uh, not began translating, but I guess, uh, well, translating, and uh, archiving and assembling the diaries and the papers and the stories of many of the Polish immigrants to, uh, to Sweden who came out of the Ravensbrück uh, concentration camp after, after they were liberated. Lund also uh, operates the Swedish Theological Institute in Jerusalem, which uh, not many know about, but is a wonderful bridge for clergy and people of faith uh, from, of, uh, from Sweden to come and experience Israel and, and learn more about the Judeo-Christian uh, relationship. 
And the program tonight is brought to you not only by Lund University, but also by the Lund University Foundation, which is a group that's been put together to uh, bring more information about Lund to America, to rekindle ties with American alumni of, uh, of Lund University, and of course, as we all do, to raise money for his programs to continue doing what it does and operating these very, very important programs. I'd like to introduce some guests in the audience. Uh, Joran Eriksson. Joran is the president of the Lund University Foundation. We have uh, Sven Strömqvist, who is the uh, vice president of the University for Research. He gets mad at me when I say this, but that's kind of like the vice chancellor, but we can't say vice chancellor because their chancellor is called vice chancellor. A little complicated, but uh, Sven's a big guy and a very important guy at the university. And we have Ulrika Nilsson, who's the director of development at Lund University and the executive director of, uh, of Lund University uh, Foundation. A little bit more about Lund, uh, it has created many of the inventions and the things that we take for granted over the years. It has a booming uh, medical and scientific uh, research program. It has a strategic partnership with Stanford University. Um, and, and some of the inventions and the enhancements of our lives that we take for granted that came out of Lund are Bluetooth, uh, laser cancer treatment in the artificial kidney, and with that, I'm going to introduce our very special guest speaker for tonight. Uh, Professor Jesper Spartbeek, uh, to me, uh, I've had the pleasure of getting to know Jesper uh, over a period of time now, and he truly personifies the age-old adage, speak softly, but carry a big club. And Jesper's club is uh, his vast knowledge his scholarly work and his commitment to human rights and to the rights of the people of Israel and the, uh, and the Jewish community. He's an ordained priest in the Lutheran Church of Sweden. He is a full professor in Lund's School of Theology. He is a professor at the Swedish Theological Institute in Jerusalem. He's a great scholar uh, with many books published. I think he's publishing his sixth book now, sixth book uh, now. And the focus of his studies and his scholarly work and his teaching is Judeo-Christian relations. In fact, uh, Jesper, uh, Jesper wrote his doctoral thesis on Kashrut. Think of that. And taught me uh, the symbolism of, uh, of applying the tefillin uh, last week or a few days ago in, uh, in New York. Um, yes, but is also a uh, true friend of the state of Israel and the worldwide Jewish community. He's a former chair of the Swedish Committee Against Anti-Semitism. He stands up for what's right in the world. Uh, when he's teaching at the uh, Swedish Theological Institute, he leads regular tours of Yad Vashem for international clergy. Um, and uh, after Jesper's speech, Rabbi Rubin will come up and help moderate questions. And with that, it's my great privilege and a pleasure to introduce to you Professor Jesper Svartbeek.
Thank you, thank you very much. Shilchu vaish miktashecha, laaresh hilchilelu mishkan shmecha. Amru velibam ninam yachad, safu chol muadeel baaretz. They burnt your sanctuary to the ground, they defiled the dwelling place of your name. They said in their hearts, we will crush them completely. They burnt every place where God was worshipped in the land. Coming Saturday, coming Shabbat, exactly 75 years have passed since the Kristallnacht. And the words from Tehillim that I just quoted lend a voice to all those humiliated, beaten, detained, and murdered. All over Germany and Austria, Jewish sanctuaries were set on fire and burned to the ground, and the message was quite clear, as in the words, 75 years ago, the 74th Psalm, we will crush them completely. The Kristallnacht is often called the final rehearsal of the Nazis' final solution, the Endlösung der Judenfrage. And 75 years later, we remember the dead, we honor the survivors, and we also recommit ourselves to fighting anti-Semitism. What can we do? What should we do? What must we do? And one would think that a world war with 55 million dead and a systematic genocide of 6 million of the Jewish people, out of which 1 million were children, yes, one would think that anti-Semitism would never again rise. One would think that it had vanished from the surface of the earth, never to appear again. But those who assume this are quite simply wrong. Jews in Europe, in the Middle East and elsewhere, not only experience anti-Semitism, they experience that anti-Semitism is rising. And let me share with you a few facts tonight from a recent survey from nine European countries. A quarter of the respondents said that they avoid visiting places or wearing symbols that identify them as Jews for fear of anti-Semitism. Fear of wearing a kippah or other identifiable Jewish items is especially strong in Sweden. 49% of the respondents said that they refrained from such actions according to a year-long survey conducted from September 2012 to September 2013, among more than 5,100 Jews interviewed by the European Union Agency for Fundamental Rights. And one week, uh, one week every year, I teach pro bono at an institute for Jewish studies in Stockholm, the capital of Sweden. So I've seen this. I've seen how men remove the kippah, the kippot, and how women put the Magen David inside the top before leaving the building the Jewish center in Stockholm. In France, 40% of approximately 1,200 Jews said they avoid wearing such items in public, followed by Belgium, 36%, and in total, 22% of the respondents said they avoid Jewish events and Jewish sites. This is Europe today. 22%, more than every fifth person, said they avoid not only wearing a kippah in public, not, a, not only wearing a Magen David, but even avoiding a Jewish event and a Jewish site. That is what is going on in Europe today. A few years ago, 
I participated in a conference in Cordoba in southern Spain, organized by the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, OSCE. You may have heard of this organization. And there are two, uh, two uh, statements in the Cordoba Declaration from the conference that are of particular importance for us today. First of all, in this document it's stated that it's necessary, quote, to recognize that some forms of intolerance and discrimination may have unique characteristics and origins, end of quote. And I think that's very, very important. What's emphasized here is that we have good reasons to pay particular attention to some forms of stereotyping, prejudice, discrimination. It's of course, I mean, needless to say, it's of course always wrong to loathe people, but some, simply because out of historical reasons, some forms of loathing are even more dangerous than other forms, because they have, quote, unique characteristics and origins, end of quote. And anti-Semitism is such a phenomenon. And therefore, we all have to pay it. They have a peculiar, particular potential to destroy and hurt. And I think of anti-Semitism not only as a lack of knowledge, as a pothole, if you like, in the road. It's a shortage of something. And if you just add something, if you add knowledge, you won't have the problem. I think that anti-Semitism is part of European, Europe's cultural heritage. To use the same kind of metaphor, it's a bump on the road, if you like. In order to drive there safely, you will have to remove something, and that's so much more difficult. If you think of something just to add knowledge, well, you say it, and then there is no longer a pothole on the seat. But if there's a bump there, you have to remove it. And anti-Semitism is part of Europe's legacy, Europe's cultural heritage. It's there. Europe is the continent that, where Christianity has been for 2,000 years. And only a few decades ago, Europe was vex, uh, immune to ordinary decency. So there's something in Europe that is deeply, deeply disturbing and deeply, deeply wrong. So what is it that we can do then? Speaking as a European coming to your community tonight, what is it that we can do? And the most important word I can think of is education. The second point in the Cordoba Declaration I thought of uh, that I wanted to share with you tonight is that it says that anti-Semitism can never be excused by referring to the political situation in Israel or in other parts of the Middle East. And that's also important, because in Europe today, the discourse, the anti-Jewish discourse, has an anti-Israeli um, tone and tenure. What this statement says, that it's always wrong to give vent to anti-Semitism, whatever may happen in the Middle East. Well, in other words, it's always right to combat anti-Semitism and other forms of racism. It's that easy, and nevertheless, it's so very difficult. In a book by Walter Lacour, The Changing Face of Antisemitism, he has a statement that I often think of, and he says like this, Hitler gave antisemitism a bad name. There's a widespread reluctance on the part of even the most severe critics of the Jews to accept this label. 
So although we no doubt encounter antisemitism in Europe and other parts of the world, there are no antisemites today. I mean, if you read literature from the early 20th century, you meet a lot of proud antisemites. They write antisemitism and they call themselves antisemites and they are mighty proud of it. But we don't see that today, which means that we have a problem, but we don't have the terminology. And our, the rabbi referred to this. So what are we talking about when we're talking about antisemitism? And a lot of people want to redefine the word, saying that it means something else. Antisemitism was coined by those who wanted to hate Jews, and that is what it's all about. So we have antisemitism, but strangely enough today we don't have any antisemites. Those who spurn Jews and Judaism do not call themselves antisemites. And this is something we have to understand, and therefore I will repeat it once again. Those who today spurn Jews and Judaism on a regular basis always, always, they don't call themselves anti-Semites. And if you confront them with this, they will immediately say, I'm not an anti-Semite. Here, hence, we have a problem, and it's quite easy to detect this problem, but we don't, can't use the ordinary, the usual label, anti-Semitism. I don't know if you've seen, if you've read a book by David Nirenberg that was recently published, a big book, Anti-Judaism, the Western Tradition, in which he explores the extraordinary place of Judaism in the history of thought itself. I read it this summer, it took me a long time because it's not only has a lot of information, but it gives you a lot of food for thought. So he continues by saying, anti-Semitism is not simply an attitude towards the action of real Jews and the religion, it's a way of critically engaging the world. It's a way to critically engaging the world. So what does he mean when he says that? It means that people want to overcome something. They see a problem and people tend to term, tend to call the old stage that you want to replace something that has to do with Judaism. So it's an overcoming of Judaism. It has the capacity to introduce Judaism in whatever it criticizes. And I know I'm repeating myself here, but what I see in Europe today that there are no anti-Semites, but there are people who always talk about that there is something deeply problematic with Jews and Judaism. I ask my students, when I see their reports, their papers, their, their, uh, their essays, uh, their exams, is Judaism a life to be lived or a problem to be solved? And they've never heard that before. Because for so many people outside, outside of the Jewish world, Judaism tends to be a problem to be solved. It's something that's wrong in the Hebrew Bible that has to be fixed in the New Testament. There's something that's problematic in what scholars used to call late Judaism, Spätjudentum in German, that has to be fixed in the, uh, in the newer era. That, that is why I think David Nirenberg is so, unfortunately, that he's so correct when he says it's a way of critically engaging the world because it's some kind of overcoming, replacing the old with something new. So all those people who say that they oppose stereotyping, prejudice, discrimination, tribalism, egotism, slandering, 
patriarchal structures. Yes, even those who say that they refuse, uh, refute anti-Semitism, anti-Judaism, racism, these people tend to refer to something that used to be there but no longer ought to be there. They refer to Judaism in the Hebrew Bible, they refer to the Pharisees in the New Testament, and this is something that has to be opposed and to be, one has to overcome. I could say a lot about Nirenberg's book because it's so thought-provoking, but I just wanted to mention this and I'll, I'll continue with, um, uh, with other aspects of this. And that is towards the end of the book, when he reaches the Third Reich era, and we see that Jewishness ten, uh, continued to not be limited to real Jews, but it, it's all over. Even those in the history of Europe who have never met Jews, they know so much about Jews. They have never read books about Judaism, and yet they know so much about this religion. It's a very odd phenomenon. You heard in the introduction that I'm ordained, and I think it, that if many of my colleagues were asked, could you give a presentation of Hinduism or Buddhism or Islam? A lot of them would say, I can't do that because I don't read Sanskrit or I don't know Arabic or I haven't visited the Muslim world. I, I can't really do that. You have to ask someone else. But if I ask them to say something about Judaism, immediately they will pop up in the pulpit and say a lot of things about Judaism. Although they have never met Jews, they don't know anything about living Judaism today. That is the problem. That is what makes the Jewish-Christian connection so unique. I don't like to use the word unique because you can't say that something is pretty unique or rather unique. But in the wide variety of this landscape of interreligious relation, there's something unique about the Jewish-Christian encounter because a Christian cannot but relate to Judaism. Christians read the Hebrew Bible in every service. And if I had a colleague who spoke about Islam in every single sermon and said something bad about Islam, that it's so good that Christianity is there because Islam is such a threat. I'm quite sure that the bishop in this priest's diocese would call him or her and say, we need to talk. But if a person talks about Judaism and Jews and Pharisees in sermon after sermon after sermon, year after year, the bishop won't call because this is something that Christians have been doing for 2,000 years. They drag Jews and Judaism into the service, they drag them into the homilies and into the lectionaries and into the um, prayer books and into the theological seminaries. Christians are obsessed with this. They talk about Judaism all the time, and as Nirenberg said, it's a kind of overcoming. You need the dark background in order to have the light, this, this uh, sun of York, as Shakespeare said, the, this, the sun, S-O-N or the S-U-N in the New Testament. You need that. In, for the sun to shine, you need a very dark background. It, has not, it doesn't have to be this way, but this is the way that it has to be, uh, that it has been. So going back to Nirenberg's book, when he says, so how then should one look upon what happened in the 1930s and the 1940s. 
And he said, I'm not claiming that the long history of thinking with and about the Jewish question inevitably led to or caused the final solution. Quite the contrary, although he focuses on Germany, the habits or thoughts that he had been describing are widespread throughout Europe and the United States. In other words, anti -Jewish, the, the anti-Jewish tradition is not a sufficient condition. I don't know if you've heard this expression before, but it's not all all it takes for something to, to happen. But then he continues saying, but he does believe that the Shoah inconceivably is inconceivable and is unexplainable without the deep history of thought that he surveys in his book. We will fail to understand those terrors of the, their effect if we sunder them from what came before. And therefore, he says, it's a necessary condition, which means that if you take away, if one could, if you took away 2,000 years of a teaching of contempt in Europe, he's saying that the Shoah would not have happened. And it's a, a strange feeling for me to stand here in a synagogue today, being a Lutheran minister from Europe, saying this, that there is something deeply problematic in the history and ideology of Europe that surfaces today. As I said in the beginning, one would think that a world war with 55 million dead, that, that would make us immune against this. But as, as I told you about this survey in the beginning, it's not only is it there, but it's rising. And you heard in the beginning of the introduction, the beautiful introduction here, that I now live in Jerusalem. I very often hear French now in the neighborhood where I live. I didn't hear that a couple of years ago because people are leaving France. People are leaving some areas of, um, of uh, Sweden moving to other areas, and I know that some of them have even moved to Israel. So this is what is going on in Europe today. So to conclude this part, Anti-Judaism is part of the most ancient, is the most ancient collective hatred in the world. It's a cultural phenomenon in Europe, in, in the Christian world or the post-Christian world, but the area in this world where Christianity has been for 2,000 years. So what we need is a critically, self-critically wishing to detect Judeophobia, and I uh, return to this question that I posed to my students. Is Judaism, its texts, its tradition, adherence, etc., are they presented as a problem to be solved or a life to be lived? And if they say the first thing, there is something deeply problematic there. This overcoming, you remember Nirenberg's statement, it's overcoming, you, have, you see something and you say it's problematic and you have to overcome it and that's when Christianity comes along, because Christianity, Christians early on in church history saw themselves as the new Israel. So what does that make of a, a community like this? In, in Latin, the vetus Israel, the old Israel, very often it becomes the versus Israel, against Israel. Because if you're talking about someone in the past tense, you are not relating to it as a contemporary phenomenon. 
I'd like to share with you three phenomena that I see all the time in the ideologies in Europe, and I would say that it goes back to early Christian theology. I know that I'm talking a lot about Christianity here, but that's because I think of Europe as a, as a continent that was forged, in, pun intended here, forged so much by this kind of, of uh, theology. And I take this from a, a book by Katharina von Kellenbach on anti-Judaism and feminist religious writings. And she says that anti-Judaism is a coherent belief system. You remember my metaphor, it's not a matter of a pothole and road, it's a bump. It, and she says that this bump has been there for 2,000 years. It's a, not something that someone says as an, by accident, it's a coherent belief system. And she gave me three words, and I had been thinking so much about that, and when, when I read the book, I realized that this is, this is what I see all the time when I read the students' papers, when I read newspapers, when I meet Jews, and they tell me what they experience in Sweden. So she says that there are three motifs here, and the first one she calls scapegoating, and especially the D side charge, but uh, the, the scapegoating. And it's appropriate to begin with this because it thinks of Jews and Judaism as a scapegoat. It's so fundamental to Christian anti-Judaism, something that's bad, destructive, repressive, oppressive, evil, etc., etc. Whatever you don't like, you find it in Judaism, and therefore you have to overcome it. And the odd thing is, therefore, that liberal Christians find something in Spätjudentum they don't like, and conservative Christians find something in late Judaism they don't like. And these two images of what Judaism was at the time of uh, Otto Haish, they don't mix, you, you, you can't combine them, but there's something wrong with it. That's what makes the Spätjudentum so practical, so convenient. I searched the internet when I prepared this speech. I, I looked at the internet for, quote, the Jews kill Jesus, end of quote. And I got hundreds of thousands of hits. Then I searched the Italians kill Jesus, and I got very, very few hits. Whereas that would be, historically speaking, much more uh, to the point. I read when I prepared this that the Anti-Defamation League recently had a centennial poll saying that 26% of Americans today believe that the Jews killed Jesus. 26%, I'm not talking about Europe now, but even here in this multicultural society of the United States. I even got a website that was called www.jewskilljesus.com. I never entered it because it made me so tired. So I don't know what's there, but obviously someone thinks that's a very good website, very good name for a website. That's the first motif she talks about. Then I wanted to say something about the second one, and that is what she calls the antithesis, the, the contrast, that you find something that's important to yourself and then you have to find what's bad in the dark background. So a good Lutheran would talk about the grace of God and uh, see that the opposite of that would be uh, the law 
or halakha or the Torah. But how then do you translate into good English or good Swedish the sentence in in uh, Michelet where it says that she has uh, what is it? Torah She has the she has the loving kindness of the Torah on her tongue. But if Torah is the bad word in some Christian theologies, that law is something that you have to get rid of in order to grace to abound, what do you do with such a sentence in Mishli? I've been teaching so many students in Lund and in Jerusalem I've been talking about uh, various groups uh, during the late Second Temple period about Sadducees and the students write because they know that this will be on the exam. And I say a few words about the Essenes and they keep writing because they think this will be on the exam. And I talk about the uh, chief priests and the uh, zealots and the Herodians and they keep writing. And then I say a few words about the Pharisees and there's always one in the group who puts down his or her pen looking at me with eyes like ping pong balls and saying, if the Pharisees were like that, why then would Jesus have to come? You see this overcoming theology that's deep down there. It's just the tip of an iceberg, but it's there. And I would be a very rich person if I got a little penny every time I've heard that, every time I've, I've encountered that. So if I say something about a group that is being described in the New Testament in a way that sometimes gives vent to some kind of tension, and I describe it as historians and theologians want to describe the Pharisees today, it is a theological problem because they, they tend to present, they want to present the historical context of Jesus as his theological contrast. And if you talk about it as a context and not as a contrast, it's a theological problem. It's an ex existential problem to them. Why else would he have to come? So those were a few words about antitheses. The third motif Katharina von Kellenbach talks about is also very influential. That's the entire supersessionism motif, the prologuing of the other, talking about Judaism as something passé, that ceased to exist 2,000 years ago, which means that Adam is good and Noah is good, and King David and Solomon are good, and Moses are, uh, is good. All those characters, Josiah, Jes uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Yechezkel, all those uh, important persons are good. When it, but when it comes to the Second Temple period, it's no longer interesting. And it's so odd that when a colleague of mine at Lund University wrote a question at a, an exam saying, when did the Jews celebrate Sukkot? And the student came to me and said, so what am I supposed to do here? When did, Judah, when did Jews celebrate Sukkot? And I said, you should have written last September. That would be, the, or last October. That would be that. But they think of Judaism something passé. And I see the students writing and they may come from 
they may have a very Christian background or they may have a more secular background. They may uh, want to become teachers, so they don't know a lot about it, but they still talk about Judaism in the past tense, which means that when they talk about the scholar who says something about Judaism and the scholar now is, has, uh, is, is deceased, if I take uh, Rudolf Bultmann, a German theologian who is no longer among us. So a student can write, Rudolf Bultmann argues that Judaism was, whereas it, it should be the other way around. Don't you agree? You, you should say that Rudolf Bultmann used to argue, used to write, used to say that Judaism is. So that's why, once again, I'm so, it's such a privilege to be here tonight in a Jewish context. When I visited Rome and I went to the Ark of Titus, I wanted to see the menorah there, and I met a Jewish family with kippot and everything pointing at a small inscription. Someone had written, Am Yisrael Chai. So, you know, the, it's, it, uh, it depicts the how the treasures were, were taken out of the temple. But someone had written today, Am Yisrael Chai. And that is so, so, so important for my students to, to understand. And that's why it's not a pothole, but it's the bump. It's not only something you need to know, there's something you have to unlearn as well. Those are three motifs that I meet all the time and I wanted to share this with you because it says something about how close Judaism and Christianity, the Jewish and tr Christian traditions are together. For better, for worse, well in sickness and in health, but seldom to love and to cherish, I, I'm sure, that they are so related. You can't enter a Christian service without hearing a lot of Hebrew words. There will be hallelujah and hosiana and amen. So. Christians, Christianity began as a Jewish movement and therefore it constantly refers to Judaism. And if you think of it, if you think that you don't have to think about it, it will be a bad hermeneutics. It will be, for sure be a bad theology. I don't know if you've heard of C. Mikhailovsky. Some of you may have heard of this, may have heard of him may have uh, read about him um, in, a, in a book, for example, published by Joel Marcus a couple of years ago. I bought it in the Vatican, of all places, a book about Svi Mikhailovsky. Svi Mikhailovsky and all the other Jews from the village of Esiski in Lithuania, they were forced into the forest to dig a deep ditch on September 25, 1941. And then, one after one, they were shot. Tsimikalovsky, he counted the seconds between every shot, and only seconds before it was his turn to be murdered, he threw himself into the ditch, lying there all day long. And in the evening, when the murderers thought that they, there were no Jews left in the entire village and went home, he left the ditch, went to the houses in the neighborhood, in the Christian neighborhood, but no one wanted to help him. And that night he knocked on many doors, but each and every time the door was closed in his face. Finally he went to a house of an elderly woman, knocked on her door, asked her to let him in, but she did the same thing. 
And then Jan Tsvi Mikhailovsky got a brilliant idea, a brainwave, when he said, don't you see who I am? Don't you see that I am Jesus who has come down from the cross? Can't you sense my pain and my suffering? Can't you see my wounds? And then everything changed. She said, Bože moi, Bože moi. His words changed everything. She left him in. She gave him food to eat, water to drink, a bed in which he could sleep. And he was there for three days and three nights. And when leaving her house, he ordered her not to reveal that the crucified had the crucified one had visited her. So why do I mention this story, this true story, that this happened? It's because for 2,000 years, Jews and Christians have been arguing about to whom the scriptures belong, whether the 53rd chapter in the prophet Isaiah, in its truest sense, is about the Jewish people as a collective, or whether it's about Jesus of Nazareth. By connecting these two master stories of Jews and Christians, this Jewish boy helped the Christian woman to overcome her inability to see the plight of the other, to see the suffering servant, to see that the suffering servant was a fellow human being and a Jew. So this remarkable and for me unforgettable story tells me something about how close the Jewish and Christian traditions are to each other. I've said all this tonight because I want to share with you my deep conviction that Christians and the Christian world and those who live and teach and preach in the Christian world need to unlearn. They need to learn and they need to unlearn. So what can we do and what must we do, as I said in the beginning? And I would like to say three words here. Elucidation, encounter, and education. So, elucidation. The problems are so vast that rhetorical Jews are so close that Christians do not see them. They need help to identify the problems in their own theological thinking. And we heard in the introduction here that I take groups to Yad Vashem in Jerusalem, and I tell them, if it's a Christian group, I tell them to pay attention in what context they see Christian symbols. Where do they see the cross, priests, bishops, churches, New Testaments, etc. So it's a matter of elucidation, illumination, enlightenment to realize the role that Christian teaching or contempt have played in history. That's the first E. The second E stands for education. I arrange courses in Jerusalem at the Swedish Theological Institute together with Yad Vashem now in January, the next time. And we need to study historical questions, but we also need to pose those theological questions. So why is it so important to present Judaism as the contrast rather than the context? Why is, that? Why is this urge so important? Or as John Dominic Crossan wrote in an essay, a review recently, why did Christianity arrive and why did Judaism survive? Isn't that a very good formulation? That those who will teach in Europe, those who will preach in Europe, need to ask themselves, why do I think Christianity arrived and why did Judaism survive? And if you don't have a good answer to that, it will be a very bad theology for the Jewish people. I'm a Christian, I'm ordained, 
whenever I enter a church, whenever I attend a Christian service, I know that I'm a Christian. I see the symbols, I, I sing the hymns, I know I'm a Christian. But when in Jerusalem, I always attend the Kabbalat Shabbat service on Friday evening, and there is one moment, it's a beautiful service, the entire thing, but there's one moment when I, that I think of the, the uh, climax, the epiphany for me, it shall be an eternal sign forever between me and the children of Israel. So what does it mean that it is that Christianity arrived and Judaism survived? Now the last E. The last E, I promise you. The third E stands for encounter, meeting the other, spending time in Jerusalem, experiencing Shabbat in Jerusalem, walking home from synagogues on a Friday evening, meeting all these people who don't know where they are going and they can't uh, call anyone and they can't draw a map. And uh, it's a lovely experience to be in Jerusalem. You, you, those of you who have been there recently, you may know that, that the Rakevet now is a, is a wonderful park. But before the railway was this park, it was difficult to pass it. So I asked someone on my way home to Paula Fredriksson for Shabbat dinner, uh, uh, where do I cross the Rakevet? And this person was carrying something, so he put down what he was carrying, and then he said, you are already on the other side. And then he took what he, and, and went on. <laughs> and I thought, I didn't want the philosophical Reflection, I wanted to know where I can pass the Rakevet. <laughs> and in this city, in Jerusalem, there is this institute, the Swedish Theological Institute, and it's my privilege to teach there at Rehov Hanevim in a building that Teddy Kolek, the, uh, the famous uh, mayor of Jerusalem for decades, uh, he said that if I could choose any house where to live in Jerusalem, I would choose Beit Tavor, uh, the house of Tabor. And it's still on the Hebrew Wikipedia, I believe. That is where I teach, and I devoted my teaching to fighting anti-Semitism and especially the kind of anti-Judaism that we find in Christian circles. I'm very proud, I'm very honored that my chair is named after Christa Stendhal, the legendary Harvard uh, Divinity School professor and dean. And those of you who don't know him may want to hear this presentation of him. At the memorial, uh, memorial service for him when he passed away, Susanna Heschel, the daughter of the legendary Avram Joshua Heschel, uh, rose and entered the pulpit and, and described everything horrible that had happened in history and during the Second World War. And then she made a pause and then she said, but after the war, God sent Christus Stendhal. So that is the person that has done so much to build bridges of understanding between Jews and Christian. And you can understand what a privilege and what a humbling experience it is to be um, the, having his uh, chair that's named after him. 
Tonight, I would like to invite you to help us at Lund University and the Swedish Theological Institute to promote improved Jewish-Christian relations. And my dream is to have more possibilities to offer students scholarships for studies in Jerusalem. Not only for a few days, my, my dream would be to, for them to be there for a semester because I'm convinced that their impressions, their knowledge, their insights would last for the rest of their lives. And I know this for a fact because that's what happened to me. I was there in 1990 for a semester and it changed my life. I was one of those that I've been talking so much about tonight. So it's very much a self-critical, introspective perspective tonight. I didn't know anything about Judaism, but I thought I knew. I hadn't met many Jews, but I thought I knew, knew what, uh, uh, what Jews think and want and fear and, and love. So that's why I, I, um, I'm so happy that I had this possibility to meet you tonight. And I invite you to join us in this important and exciting venture. I hope that many of you will find this project worthy of our support. And once again, I'm so grateful for this kind invitation to Kailat Yisrael. Thank you all for coming tonight. Thank you. Beautiful. Well, you can see you can see why that was um, such a, a privilege for us to have you here, and uh, and how happy we were that um, that our own um, former board member, soon to be another board member again, um, Robert Resnick, introduced us to you and to, to Lund and to uh, the great work that you're doing in Jerusalem. I must say that there's nothing quite like spending a semester or in my case it was spending a year, my junior year in, in Jerusalem studying it certainly changed my life, it's how I ended up here also. You see we both ended up here for the same reason. Um, and it's, uh, I want you to know what a, a special relationship we have actually with the Lutheran Church, which is next door. Um, our Lutheran Church is next door and while we were building this building, we tore down our previous synagogue, we lived in the Lutheran Church for almost two years and they were such wonderful hosts to us, and we had such a great relationship there that I was almost sorry that we finished building the building as much as I love, really love this new building, because there was something very precious and very special about sharing that space, sharing the sacred space. And not only that, during that, that time, our, our children were having, because we didn't have classrooms here, they were having their religious school at the Methodist Church. So they would have religious school at the Methodist Church and services at the Lutheran Church. And between the two of them, they really got a sense of what it meant to be in a community beyond ourselves. Because even as a Jewish community, minorities in a majority culture, when all you do is hang out with other Jews you know, all the time and come to the synagogue, you don't know very much about what Christians think either and about what their life is like other than the popular culture of America as a Christian country. So there's something very powerful and very precious and very important about the work that you're doing and the fact that we're able to have you here today and we really deeply appreciate that. Um, so uh, 
want to open this up to any questions or that any of you have so that we can do that here. Thank you very much. I, th I thought that was a brilliant talk and uh, I'm sure we all did. And uh, thank you very much for coming and sharing that. I have sort of a two-part question, which will be somewhat shorter than your lecture. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, what we hear, I'm sort of a Euro watcher. I, I follow sort of European news and um, we always hear statistics and so on about the um, secularization of Europe. And in comparison to America, where you have this sort of this evangelical phenomenon, which has contributed so much to the American political system, that, uh, that Europe, joking, that Europe is uh, like church attendance, is, is um, the decline of Christianity as a central cultural force, let's say compared to America. So the question is, to what extent is the anti-Semitism, the rising anti-Semitism, to what extent, if any, can, can we talk about a secular anti-Semitism, which has its roots? I mean, I, I don't question for a moment your historical explanation that, that it's, it's a legacy. To what extent has it taken on a somewhat um, secular face? And then the second part of that is, that, of course, I accept your argument that, um, that Jews in Europe cannot be held accountable for policies in Israel. At the same time, in terms of human psychology, there is a sense in which, I'm not justifying the opposite, I'm not saying that Jews in Europe should be held accountable for Israeli policies, but there is a sense in which Jews, I think, in America, and I'm sure also in Europe, uh, tend to be, not all of them, but tend to be especially supportive of Israel. I mean, I think it's something we all feel. Yes. It's exactly. And so, in a sense, uh, if you have, let's say, a group of French people who are Jewish, or a group of Swedish or German people, or Spanish people who are Jewish, and who have a special loyalty to Israel, and support Israel and, and, and give money to Israel as it's something that we all feel as Jews. I mean, we all feel connected to Israel. It seems that given that special connection, if Israel then as a political entity adopts certain, or not even policies, I, I think it's, it's sort of a cliche that Israel tends to win military wars and lose diplomatic battles. So to what extent is, does that feed into uh, let's say resentment, let's say the, 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 end, the, the fact that Israeli policies or the presentation of them by the current administration, to what extent can Jews in Europe who support Israel so much, to what extent can they completely escape any, you understand what I'm saying? And so the secular, the secular anti-Semitism and the inevitable connection with Israel given the special support for Israel. Thank you. You're right, it was a little shorter than his... Um... Right speech. Thank you. Thank you very much for two important questions. So what about uh, the, the interplay between the, the Christian legacy and the teaching of contempt and secularization? Well, couldn't one say that this has happened once before? And we saw that uh, during the French Revolution, the Enlightenment, uh, everything, that anti-Semitism didn't go away. Although they said uh, everything to the Jew as an individual, but nothing to the, um, the Jewish people as a people, uh, 
anti-Semitism was there. Voltaire, uh, the father of enlightenment, was a rabid anti-Semite. So I think what happened then is also happening now. Although the importance of Christianity is uh, l uh, not as um, uh, large today as it used to be, and church attendance, etc., is lower, the, the stereotyping, the, the, the discourse is still there. It survived secularization, that you, the, the scapegoating, the antithesis, and the prologuing, perhaps more the scapegoating and the antithesis, they are still there, very much so. So, so I, I, I agree with you that it survived secularization, and that is what's so disheartening. About the second question, um, I live in Jerusalem. I, I see problems. I just opened Jerusalem Post and Haaretz, and I listen to radio and TV, and I see demonstrations, and I meet people. Of course, if it's a country with people of flesh and blood, blood there are problems. There are multiple problems. But I, I, at the same time, I, I, I very much feel that that compared to what's going on in Egypt, compared to what's going on in Syria, it, it is very strange that one focuses in that way so much on what goes on in Israel. That is not to say that I don't think it's important, because I don't think that Israel should be compared to Syria and Egypt. I, I do think that one could, if you hear what I'm saying now, one could expect more from Israel because Israel has been a democracy ever since it was founded in 1948. But I, I want, I want uh, it to be me that has higher standards for Israel. I don't want people to come to me in Jerusalem and, and comparing Israel to the, what, the horrible things going on in Syria today and saying, well, if I look at these two, I think it's more problematic what goes on in Israel than in Syria. That's not fair. It's not fair if I'm driving 10 kilometers more than I should on the highway and someone drives 200 kilometers. I don't know what that would be in miles per hour, but that's a lot in Europe. And that you say that the person driving 10 kilometers too much, that that's the major problem. And, and the, the part of the scapegoating, I think, is that what I hear over and over and over and over and over again is that, that there's a, uh, the redemptive aspect of the Middle East conflict, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, that if that, uh, were that to be solved, everything else in the world would, would be solved. That, for me, is an example of the secularization that Christians have been obsessed by, that if only Jews were baptized, then the kingdom of God would be here. And for me, that's a secularization of this persistence. Why is it so important to solve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? And why is it not complex? And that's why I, I do think that it survived secularization. So thank you very Thank much. you very much. There's also um, <clears throat> one other thing about anti-Semitism that I just wanted to um, add, which is, although we're all aware, and it was beautifully explained this evening as well, of the, the religious roots of anti-Semitism. Uh, religious anti-Semitism uh, has a solution. There's a solution in theory to religious anti-Semitism, which is conversion. If you are religiously an anti-Semite, that is, you think you're against uh, Jews because they killed Jesus or however you want to formulate that from a religious perspective, then the solution to that problem is simply the conversion of Jews 
to Christianity and them stopping Jews, what certainly evolved <clears throat> dramatically in the 20th century and was made very clear by the Holocaust and by the entire Nazi theology was not a religious anti-Semitism, but a fundamental genetic anti-Semitism, a racial anti-Semitism from which there is no escape. Because if, if you are, <clears throat> by definition, as a Jew, uh, <clears throat> deviant in your, in your genes, if the only solution, which was the Nazi solution, was literally extermination because there is nothing you can convert from, which is why Jews who weren't even Jewish were considered to be a part of the Jewish people and, and by the Nazis, then the entire world has shifted in the whole definition of, of what anti-Semitism is about and the inability of Jews to escape from that, because, which I think is another platform upon which all of European anti-Semitism currently stands. The legacy of the 20th century and the legacy of the Nazi regime and the legacy of the Holocaust is really that subtle but fundamental shift from the religiousness of anti-Semitism to something much more insidious, something that there, for which there is no escape and there's really no solution at all because if you're Jewish, you can't be un-Jewish by simply converting if it's in your genes, if it's you know, by definition. Yeah. Jesper, thank you for an absolutely wonderful, incredible, and exciting presentation. Uh, and when Rabbi Rubin talked about, you know, that as, a, you know, the conversion of Jews being the elimination of, of the problem and the basis of, uh, of, the, of the Holocaust, I was uh, reminded of Wendy in my recent visit to Spain where there were only three remaining synagogues from the pre-Inquisition time. And, in fact, I think that was the basis uh, some uh, 500 years ago during the Inquisition of the, of the same effort. Uh, my, my question is, uh, in, uh, in what countries do you see anti-Semitism as being uh, expressed most strongly and with greater organization? Uh, for example, the, uh, you know, the, some of these... Uh, 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 ultra-right uh, sort of neo-fascist parties coming up in, in, in what countries do you see it more as sort of a uh, uh, for lack of a better term perhaps a visceral hatred thank you as we said it's a multifaceted phenomenon anti-semitism so it can be expressed in different ways and there can be the, the driving force of it can be different so in some countries, we, we obviously have right-wing parties, like uh, Hungary. In other, part, in, in other areas of, of Europe, I would say, and I'm interested in hearing what you say about that, but I, I would say that, it, that it's related to um, um, Muslim-slash-Arab uh, community not in any way saying that it's only to be found there, but that, that it's, uh, the discourse is so much um, uh, an anti-Israeli one. So, for example, in the city of Malmö, only some 20 kilometers, and you have to figure out how many miles that, that is. Uh, only 12 miles from, from uh, where I live when I'm in Sweden, um, the, the rabbi, the, the, the orthodox rabbi, dressed in, in dark clothes, etc., 
uh, he is harassed on a regular basis and he says that that's primarily from those who obviously come from uh, uh, first generation, second generation from the Muslim slash Arab world. That's not to say that it's only to be found there, but that's where one, 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 one can detect that it's, it, it's expressed as an anti-Israeli uh, discourse. And then I would say the third group, if the first one would be the right-wing parties and the second one related somehow to, to this, this other group, and the third one is the left-wing left um, anti-Judaism. That's expressed in, a, in another way. So it's in the name of uh, egality, fraternity, that, that it's expressed. But the, the bottom line, the end of the day, is always that, that it's something uh, problematic with a, a Jewish state. Not that there, that there are decisions being made in Israel that are problematic, but that there is a Jewish state. It's a problem that there is a flag with the Magen David on. And I think I live in Northern Europe, so what is it that unites, and you may help me here, Sweden, Denmark, Norway, Finland, Iceland, Great Britain, uh, Greece, uh, Georgia, all these countries, is that they have crosses on their flags. And very seldom do I hear in Europe, it, it's deeply problematic, it's even disturbing that the, the, there's a Christian symbol on the flag. The, the, they are there for historical reasons, but we don't think of if something happens in Sweden that it's the necessary outcome of something in the Christian tradition in that way. Every summer we have a discussion going on in Sweden that poor people from Asia, especially Thailand, they sell everything they have and they take loans and they fly to Sweden in order to pick berries. And the end, at the end of the summer they don't have money to pay for their flight tickets because they're paid, the wages are so poor. This happens every summer and we are equally uh, um, surprised every year that it happens and people eat all the marmalade and, and uh, drink the, the, the thing that the, comes from the berries all the time without being a bit disturbed. But if someone came from Israel, if someone came from the United States and said that what goes on here with the, these poor people from Thailand that it's somehow related to the Christian culture. Isn't there something in the New Testament that is the origin of, of this situation? And this uh, insistence that there must be something in the Tanakh that results in the problematic aspects of, of Israel as it is post-1948, I find that very, very, very odd. So, so those are the three groups, I would say. Question here. Thank you. Thank you very much for your brilliant presentation. I really appreciate it. Just to bring it back to that context that you presented just a moment ago uh, with respect to the uh, influx of uh, North Africans into uh, Western Europe, is the dynamic of Islam ostensibly overtaking Christianity in Western Europe is that in any way likely to change the dynamic between Christians and Jews? If it will change the dynamics between Christians and Jews. Um, let me see now. <laughs> will, will 
uh, a, a growing uh, Muslim population in Europe, will it change the dynamic? Well, I, I guess you have an answer, but, but my, my, my answer would be this, that uh, what goes on in Malmö is very much related to those who have recently arrived from the um, Arab countries and Muslim world. But the way that it's being excused by um, the mayor of Malmö, the previous mayor, or by politicians in Stockholm, the capital of Sweden, that is part of this, the, the old legacy, that you say that, well, given what goes on in Israel, one would have thought that the Jews in, in Sweden should demonstrate that they don't accept what goes on there. And I'm, I'm astonished. If someone said, I can't go, um, I, I, I can't treat Muslims with respect in Europe because women can't drive a car in Saudi Arabia. Is that kind, is that kind of logic that we want to have in our society? So I think that I see it in the response to the action, the reaction to the actions. That's where I find it, um, the, the new relation between Jews and Christians, given that many who are politicians today are either Christian or post-Christian, that they have some kind of, the, the Christian legacy is there. We have uh, a few minutes left in the program. There's another question here. Thanks. Uh, two quick questions. Since uh, your speech was wonderful and a little depressing, um, is, uh, is there any good news? Are there any signs of... <laughs> Of, uh, of areas in, in, across Europe where, where, you know, pockets of Judaism are springing up where they weren't before? Some closer. Uh, are there pockets, of, uh, pockets in Europe where Judaism is springing up or coming back where it wasn't before, is the first question. And the second question, do you think the Israeli government uh, could or should be doing anything differently, almost in a PR point of view to help them promote their uh, a worldwide message to, to do anything to stem anti-Semitism. Thank you. I don't know why I had a uh, problem hearing that. Could you first first question was it? whether yes. you know of any growth of the Jewish community in Europe. Are there any communities that are growing in Europe? He's looking for some good news. He doesn't understand that. It was just Friday night I was quoted the famous Jewish telegram, you know, start worrying, details to follow. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that, so that was the first question. Yeah. So, so the short answer would be no, I don't know of any Jewish communities in Europe that are uh, growing in that sense. Uh, in the longer perspective, of course, Germany, given from 1945, etc. But, but otherwise, uh, we are constantly constantly talking about a minority um, that is not being protected as it should be. If I think of the Swedish taxpayers who vote in Sweden and not in Israel, and it's, I mean, it's so humiliating and disturbing and alarming that when um, these Swedish citizens are being persecuted because they are Jews, they are ridiculed, or it's marginalized, or they say that um, 
the new anti-Semitism is something else. And I know that we are about to round up. So, so you, do you see how David Nirenberg's expression, this, overcome, this overcoming, so over and over I hear this, that the new uh, uh, Holocaust is something. And then you point in at another problem, perhaps, and that might be an important problem, but don't take away the what the Shoah was and what it stands for and, and this, this deep wound it is in the, uh, for, the, for the Jewish people. So this overcoming uh, is so problematic. So, so let it be what it is. We have Memorial Days in Sweden. So the Kristallnacht uh, would be one day. The 27th of January is another day. May I just end with this story. I have a friend in, in Jerusalem. Both he and she, both Fredja and Dov, they came from Poland. Both of them survived the war. She came with the white buses to, uh, to Malmö and uh, in, uh, moved to Stockholm. And she met this um, young man who also survived the war, who spent uh, his first years in Sweden, in Gothenburg, on the west coast. They met and they realized, we have survived the war and we have so much in common, so we are meant to meet. And now their son is the, um, the leader of the Hebrew Union College movement, uh, Michael Marmer. When Fredja came to Sweden, she was eight years old, and she told me, that when she wanted to play with the other boys and girls in the street, someone said, you can play with us, but the condition is that you tell us what happened in the concentration camp. And that for me is very much what goes on in Europe today, that Jews are allowed to play they are allowed to be part of the, the, the public debate, but only if they talk about the Shoah on the 27th of January and on the Kristallnacht. But no other aspects and no other days. That's part of the problem. So if you remember nothing but this tonight, remember Fredja Marmer when she was eight, nine years old and they told her, you are allowed to play with us, but only if you talk about the Shoah. Thank you very well, much. I want to thank Professor Svartvik again. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you all for coming this evening.